0: Hey there, welcome to the C-Word podcast. How are you? What you doing? Are you listening to this while you're out for a walk? Maybe you're working away at your desk? Or have you found a quiet corner somewhere just to put your headphones on and listen to me instead of someone else nagging you for snacks or whatever it might be? I always want to know, what are you doing when you're listening to the podcast? Not in a creepy way, but just because I'm interested. Now I'm going to caveat today's podcast by saying you can't, neither should you, try and make someone do something they don't want to do. And this is an important distinction when it comes to the topic I want to talk about because it reframes objection handling. Because objection handling isn't about sleazy salesman tactics and persuading Eskimos to buy snow. If you assume the person you're talking to is there for a reason, is talking to you for a reason, they have a problem they think you can solve or they're drawn to you in some way, then objection handling is about offering clarity and and answering questions honestly and with integrity. So they can make a confident and informed decision about what you do and to engage with you or buy from you. Also, for clarity, an objection is a perceived reason not to do something, a perceived reason. So objection handling is replacing that with a perceived and more compelling reason to do the thing. And also, an objection isn't a no, it's the start of a conversation. So those couple of things are some elements I want you to have in mind when you think about objection handling. It's not about forcing someone to do something they don't want to do. It's not about pulling the wall over someone's eyes. And an objection is not a no. And that brings me to my second point. If you're honest and authentic guidance isn't enough to help someone make a decision in your favor, that's okay. Part of the sales process is to be prepared and be happy to let the wrong people go so you have room for the right people. Because if a client is hard-won, they're hesitant, they're full of indecision, they take up a lot of your time unnecessarily or need a lot of hand-holding and reassurance, then there's a very good chance They will be like that through the project. And that's not great. That's not a good outcome. That can end up being costly in monetary terms, in terms of your time, and it can affect your well-being and your enjoyment of the project. We don't want those clients. It's important to recognise when it might be time for you to walk away from the negotiation too. So having defined objection handling... Let's talk about how to do it when it comes to your prospective clients. That's what this podcast is all about. Okie dokie. So for me, objection handling happens at three key points in the buying process. Firstly, when the client is a watcher and a lurker, they're looking from afar and they're weighing up if you're the right person for them. Secondly, there's when they inquire and maybe get a copy of your services document. And then finally, in the sales conversation, in a discovery call or even post-call negotiations, the conversations you have after you've had that discovery call. So there are three key points where objection handling comes up and it's something you need to lean on. So you've got three broad opportunities, essentially, to anticipate and address that potential client's objections. And in this podcast, I'll talk about each of those three points in the process and the tools that are available to you at each step. Plus, I'll have a bit of a chat about three of the most common objections and what you might have in your back pocket to counter them when they come up. So first and foremost, when it comes to understanding what your client's objections might be, it's a combination of empathy, inquiry, and observation, or in the words of old McDonald, (laughs) E-I-O. Now, empathy, put yourself in your client's shoes or your prospective client's shoes and think about what might be the barriers for them. If you try and understand where your client's coming from, you might start to understand some of those objections that might be whirling around in their head. Inquiry. Technically, maybe that should be an E, but you can use an I. I did look it up. And it suited my EIO. So let's go with inquiry. So ask, essentially. Interrogate. Maybe I should have used interrogate. Never mind, it's too late for that. Ask, use your stories, talk to current clients, go into Facebook groups, talk to your biz besties even to glean information about what some of the the barriers and the objections might be for them if they were thinking about buying a similar service to yours. And then thirdly, observation. Keep an eye out for the behavior you experience in prospective clients that you deal with. If you're in a conversation and the client comes up with an objection Note it down and think about how you could preempt that next time or how you could preempt it through your process. So, that's just some tips on how you might look out for what the objections that come up might be EIO, empathy, inquiry, or interrogation and observation. So, going back to those three key points in the process first of all, the watchers and the lurkers. For the purposes of this podcast, this particular episode, I'm going to assume that your personal brand and your marketing is doing its job and you have people interested in working with you that are watching from the wings, which is who we're talking about in this first kind of step in the process. They're watching from afar. They're considering you. So this is about targeted content that both thinks about, but also addresses some of those objections that might be playing on your client's mind. So it's very specifically developed content to address those objections. And the places that you could do that would be your social media content, your FAQs on your website. Targeted testimonials and case studies are a great one. So having testimonials that specifically address a particular objection. So for example, I had a client once who, when I was in conversation with them, they were very blunt that they didn't want to change their logo. Now, the whole point of working with a brand designer or creator is that you're going to change your logo. So I had a testimonial from them saying that they didn't want to do it in the beginning. But in the conversation with me, they understood why they should. And they're really glad that they did. So that kind of objection that comes up, oh, I'm scared of change. I don't want to do certain things or any other objections you can deal with directly from the client's own mouth, in their own words. You can use your email marketing to address some objections. Your freebie content, if you've got downloads, for example, that might be skewed towards overcoming an objection. Or if you write blog content. So there are lots of ways that you can, in that lurker-watcher phase, when people are looking from afar and they might have these doubts in their mind, that you can talk to some of their barriers and their objections. Secondly, then when they inquire. Now the first inquiry, as I've mentioned in the past, should be automated. It's a way of qualifying people to ensure you don't spend too much time on someone who isn't a good fit for you or you're not a good fit for them. So having that first inquiry point as a potential automation is a really good thing to do ultimately saves you time saves your client time it's a quick way for people to sort out if it's a good fit so this is where the value-led proposal comes in I've spoken about this quite a few times I go into a lot of detail about it in my creative value incubator program and in there I share practical steps and a template even for my clients to build a value-led proposal of their own And I've also talked about it in a previous podcast, so I'll put the link in the show notes. It was episode number 17, and I break down in there what should go into a value-led proposal. And the reason I'm talking about this for this phase is this particular document is one of your biggest and best opportunities to overcome objections, not least because it's downloaded at a time when your prospect is looking for information so, there's a very good chance that they will read and digest it. And so, it's a good point in the process, a great opportunity to impart a lot of information onto them. So, the key thing here is that it's something that's automated. You're still not investing a lot of time in one on one interactions before you've qualified that prospect, but that you use this as an opportunity to deal with those objections. So the client's not, or the prospective client isn't downloading a price list, they're downloading something much more robust than that. And in addition to that document itself, where you can address some of those FAQs or some of the doubts that might still be in that prospect's mind, there's also the email sequence that supports and follows on from that proposal you can use that to overcome some of the possible objections too. So for me, that middle point, if you like, in the selling process, where they've gone from watcher and lurker into an inquirer, someone who is engaging at that first port of call, this is a pivotal opportunity to impart a lot of information and provide a lot of reassurance without investing any of your time still. So like I said... The key is that this is automated, so you don't invest too much time too early on in a client that's still on the fence. And finally, then there's the discovery phase or that meeting or that call phase where you might have a one-on-one with the client. So this is likely to be a call with a prospective client to chat things through in a bit more detail. Now, if you have done a thorough and thoughtful job for the watchers and lurkers and the inquirers, then you should be well on your way here, I think. This is the opportunity to address any final objections head on. And for me, the key in this phase is partly about what you say, but it's the confidence and conviction with which you deliver it that is perhaps more important. So again, I talk a lot about the consultant mindset and that comes into play here in a significant way. Having confidence in the value of what you do and talking about it with self-assurance and conviction is essential in imparting that confidence onto your client. Confidence is contagious. So in a discovery call... Focus on your demeanor and the energy you bring as much as the message that you deliver. So when you're addressing those objections, it's not only about the content, the message that you share in response to that objection. It's that conviction and that authority that you have to go with it. And my final tip when it comes to the discovery call and objection handling in particular is don't ignore the elephant in the room. Make sure you ask the questions. Is there anything you're unsure about? What concerns or hesitations do you still have? Is there anything else you want to ask me or clarify? Does what we've talked about meet your expectations or is there anything that doesn't work for you. Hit it head on. Have the client talk about it. Now is your opportunity to deal with it. And very often, as they say, a problem shared is a problem halved. When the client actually talks about it and verbalizes it with you in a meeting, the conversation that follows is very reassuring. And then it doesn't become the bigger concern that it might do if they're left alone with their thoughts to reflect on it after the call. Okay, so we've talked about the pivotal points where you can address objections and how to get a better understanding of where your client's head could be at. So EIO, remember? Let's now talk about the three objections that come up a lot in my experience. So firstly, of course, budget is a big one. It's probably the number one. Now, some people would argue that budget is not the issue. It's perceived value and people will always find more if they really want it. And I would agree that that is partially true. But budget restrictions will always kick in at some point. And priorities that influence spend also have an impact So if the client is a startup and they've got lots of things they need to invest in, then they might prioritise other things over what you're offering. That's not to say those priorities are right, but that's just what it is for them in their perception. But when someone says they're not sure their budget will stretch that far, or it's more than they wanted to spend, or they're not sure they'll get the return Then you should have a response ready for that because they are saying that they are hesitant about spending this money. They're not saying that if they spend this money, it's going to mean that they can't eat for a week. What they're saying is they have doubts. So my first aim in any discovery call is to talk about objectives and what the client wants as an outcome. And by starting off there, everyone has their eyes on the prize through the conversation. It helps to remind that client, that prospective client, that there is a goal or an aspiration for them. There is a reason they came to you in the first place, and it wasn't just about finding the cheapest option, was it? So having that top of mind is a good way to orientate the client towards why they're doing this and what they want. If the issue of budget comes up or the issue of this being more than they wanted to spend or possibly outside of their budget, my first response in brand terms is often to talk about the impact of brand on the bottom line of a business. Because sometimes brand can be seen as a nice to do. Oh, I just want to give my logo a refresh. I just want to give things a reskin. I want to feel better about my brand. So it's not given or seen as the business critical part of the process that it could and should be. So I talk about how a strong and rigorous brand impacts Profitability, income, the revenue of a business. And it impacts it by time saved, by pre-qualifying clients, increased referrals, building brand equity, particularly if an exit strategy is part of the long-term plan. So there are lots of very tangible ways that a robust brand can impact the bottom line, i.e. profitability. When it comes to the cost conversation, I also talk about if they see this as a cost or as an investment. And whilst design, or in my case brand, is an initial expenditure, I do remind the client that if they go into it with strategic clarity and knowledge of what they want to achieve and how achieving that will translate to growth, then they should be able to quantify the ROI. If they don't expect to see a return, they should think about their goals. So it's very much worth reminding the client that this should be an investment. And if they go into it with the right strategic clarity and understanding the opportunity that's available to them, they should realize that return. It's not just a nice to do. Now, I don't over here as every situation is different, but I do talk about specific examples where the work I've done has impacted the bottom line of my clients. So I share examples in that. I would also talk about how they feel about their brand and how they want to feel. So do they want to feel proud, confident, efficient, enthusiastic, motivated about their brand and what's that worth to them? What is that worth to them in their business to be at that point where they feel all those things? Because for many people, that will be worth the investment too. And you know what? If it feels appropriate, you can also gently remind them of the pitfalls of a low-cost option. It's often not a bespoke solution, as in the case of some crowdsourcing options, for example, in design. It isn't as comprehensive very often. It might not provide a complete solution or a scalable solution, and it may not be ownable as in the case for some canvas solutions. So it's worth reminding them of the potential cost of what might be an initially cheaper option. You might also talk about your own experience and qualifications. Not all designers have the same skill set or credentials. So remind them of why they're coming to you over maybe some of the other designers or creatives they're comparing you to. But finally, on this topic, what you should never do is justify your hours or your time. So you don't have to quantify your cost based on what you will do in terms of time or investment of hours. The second objection, which is a fairly common one, is, oh, I don't need all of that. So sometimes clients might have an oversimplified perception of what's involved in what you do. So for me, not so much now because people come to me wanting the rigour I offer in brand strategy. Early on, they had no idea sometimes about the in-depth, upfront phase and felt that they could perhaps bypass it, usually to meet one of the other two objections, which was to save money or to save time. So there's this feeling that, well, I don't need all those inclusions or I don't need to go through that full process. So the key here is to be confident in how your methodology creates the outcome. So for me, in simple terms, I would share how being clear on the brand strategy will ensure they get a sustainable solution that's built for purpose that there will be steps and processes built in to ensure that they get the opportunity to contribute, feel a sense of ownership, and that all the influencing factors are considered. The aim being that at the end of that process, they will feel empowered with everything they need to expand and grow their brand with confidence. The point here is, is that all of those inclusions, that process is set up in that way for a reason. And yes, whilst they may feel they might be able to go and get that information for you, I've had clients who've offered to go and do a competitor analysis for me, for example. Really, the value in what we do as creatives is to bring that objective or that new perspective. So as the client in the trenches in their business, there may be things that they haven't noticed, haven't seen about the opportunities or the challenges for their brand. And that's the perspective that we bring. So whilst they think they may know it, having that new point of view from us as the experts in our field is what's important, and that's what they're paying for. When it comes to dealing with that objection, that idea of, well, I don't need all of that, the important thing is to talk about why each of the components in the methodology are important and how that brings value to the process and how that allows you to bring value to the client's outcome. And then the third objection, which comes up all the time, is I need it quickly and your process takes too long. Or maybe you're not available to start immediately and I need someone to start right now. So time or lack of time is very often a concern or an objection. And the short answer as someone I used to work with in packaging design used to say, is there's always time for a reprint. And what he meant by that was when you rush, chances are you won't get a good result. There will be an error. Or you'll need to rework it in some way because you'll miss something. Or you'll need to do it again, not too far down the track, because it wasn't the robust solution that it needed to be. It just met a short-term need which means by default, the timeline is pushed out. Because if there's an error and you print it with an error, then you're gonna have to do the reprint and you're gonna have to make time for that. So it's better to use that time to get a great well thought through result in the first place. It is worth bearing in mind here that it's really a need situation. It's more of a want situation you can also help the client by trying to understand where that need is coming from in inverted commas. Why do they want this quickly? Because there may be a perceived deadline, like they're going on holiday or something else is happening in their life, but actually that doesn't create the time pressure that it may first appear to do. So you can actually help the client work through that sense of impending doom or that timeline pressure or that self-imposed timeline and perhaps give them a new perspective on that. But in my experience, overall, good things take time. Yes, you might have a gem of an idea while you're brushing your teeth and you'll crack the problem in five minutes. But the overall solution, the overall delivery and giving it the right consideration and detailing takes time and when you feel rushed the solution ends up feeling rushed too and I also in the nicest possible way will often allude to the fact that it's not me it's you dear client it's not just me that needs the time is what I mean by that it's you the client that needs time too. time to reflect to be absent sometimes to deal with emergencies you dear client, won't enjoy the process or get the most from it if you don't have that time to just sit in it, to reflect, to be in it. And sometimes I'm fairly blunt about it and let them know that more often than not, it's the client that needs that fat in the timeline or can cause the timeline to overrun, not me. And my timeline makes allowance for that. So very often by Trying to truncate the timeline, all they're really doing is taking away really important time for themselves. And when it comes to my availability, me not being available to start straight away, for example, then I might share, minus the arrogance, if it comes across as arrogance, that it might be seen as a positive that I'm in demand, that perhaps they should take that as a good thing, not a reason for concern. So, as I said, It's important to know how you would respond to these objections, but also, and of equal importance, to be mindful and to work on the tone of your response, to build presence and authority in your delivery, in your demeanour when you address those objections. And my parting thought for today is this. You can lead a horse to water, yes you can, but you cannot make it drink. Not converting someone in the sales process, it's not a failure. If you put your best foot forward in all of the ways that I've talked about in this episode, not securing them as a client is just confirmation that they weren't the right fit in the first place. So know when to let it go. This isn't always about winning. It's about finding great clients that you can add value to in the process and in the outcome. The ultimate response to someone who's not aligned to you, to your process, to your fees, or to your timeline, is you're probably not the right fit for them. And they're certainly not the right fit for you. And it's absolutely fine. In fact, it's very necessary to come to that conclusion sometimes. So what other objections have you had? And how have you dealt with them? Or maybe you weren't sure what to say and you went shdum. Or even you took it as a no and you left it there, when actually an objection, like I said, is not a no. So you could have added more to the conversation. So I'd love for you to let me know. I've talked about three key ones here that come up more often than not around... I don't need everything in your process or I don't need everything in your inclusions or around fees. You're too expensive for me or around the timeline. Well, it's going to take too long. I have more urgent pressing matters and I can't wait for that long. So those are the key things that I find come up. But what other things have come up for you? Let me know. I would love to hear. So as always, have an amazing day. Enjoy the rest of your week. And I hope you come back and join me again soon for the next episode of The C-Word Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me, Beck Hughes, on The C-Word Podcast. If you like what you heard, subscribe, leave a review and share with your friends and business buddies who might like to listen in to. The music for this podcast is by Red Productions on Pixabay.